Thank you again, Corey. Let's go to our Bibles to Acts chapter 19. Invite you to turn with us there. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Again, we welcome you. Glad that you're here today to worship our great God. Thank you. So many of our young people, high school, college students, y'all, God bless you. You encourage me uh, as you worship and with your demonstrativeness and your excitedness, and uh, praise God for that. So Acts chapter 19, we're going to read God's Word, we're going to study it, and then we'll uh, have what we call an invitation, invite you and me to respond to what we've heard as the Holy Spirit has spoken to us through His, uh, His awesome Word, the Word of God that He spoken to existence. Aren't you glad that we have a Bible today? Aren't you glad that we can read it and that we can study it and learn from it and have our lives conformed by it? So if you're new to Great Hills, and I know many of you are, every Sunday we have lots of guests, both online as well as in the sanctuary. We have been studying the book of Acts for a little while, just a, a, a few weeks, a few months, if you will. Years And uh, we're in chapter 19, and we're going to look at today as Paul, the Apostle Paul, the, the years that you will look at with me are about A.D. 52 to 55. Uh, he is a traveling missionary. He's planting churches all over uh, the known world, the Roman Empire at least. And he comes to a city called Ephesus. He will spend more time in Ephesus than any other uh, city. He will spend three years there. He'll spend two years teaching in this um, the school that we're going to look at today, but for a total of three years, 52 to 55, the Apostle Paul is writing the Bible. He's planting churches. He's discipling people that he has led to Christ. He really is exemplary. He is the model Christian, if you will, the greatest church planter, theologian, missionary to ever live. Paul could say these words in 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. He says, I want you to imitate me. Now, that's pretty powerful. Now, he's not on an ego trip. He's not just full of arrogance or full of himself. He's literally saying, watch what I have done, and then I want you to go and do the same thing. In fact, that's what he says. Imitate me as I imitate Christ. Wouldn't it be awesome if all of us could say that? If we could get to the point in our walk with God and our maturity, we could say, whatever you see me doing, that's what I uh, encourage you to do. And so today, Paul is planting a church in Ephesus. And it is becoming the nerve center of Christendom that will impact that area of the world literally for hundreds of years. Uh, the title of the message is The Power of a Question, and that's the question that Paul will ask these Ephesian believers. Actually, they were followers of John the Baptist, and after Paul talks to them, they become followers of Jesus. They're baptized, receive the Holy Spirit, and it is an awesome time. Now, watch what he does. He takes these 12 men... And he begins to pour into them and disciple them. The church begins to expand and grow, plant other churches. In fact, when you read Revelation 2 and 3, one of the churches is the church at Ephesus. Many believe that that church at Ephesus is responsible for the other six churches that are planted on the postal route of Revelation 2 and 3. Of course, we have the book of Ephesians. Uh, we have um, the Apostle Paul planting this church. Timothy pastors this church. John the Beloved pastors this church, the church at Ephesus. Let's look at it today. And I, find, I think you're going to find, not only are you going to learn some things, there'll be data and history and information and maybe throw in a little bit of Greek. Sorry, no maps today. I don't have any maps for you today. The maps are closed, all right? We're just one city in Ephesus. But I believe you're going to be absolutely surprised 
how the Holy Spirit will speak to you through this ancient document, this living word of God, uh, the Bible. And it happened. Verse one, while Apollos was at Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper regions, Galatia, Phrygia, and those places, he came to Ephesus. And he found some disciples and he said to them, Here the, here's the question, the questions. Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? And so they said to him, we have not so much as even heard of a Holy Spirit. What are you talking about? Basically is what they're asking him. And Paul, he said to them, into what then were you baptized? And then that's again the power of a question. These are great exploratory diagnostic questions that Paul is asking these 12 men from Ephesus. And so they, they said to him, we have been baptized in John's baptism, John the baptizer. Then Paul said to them, indeed, uh, John baptized a baptism of repentance and he said to the people that they should believe on him, on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. And so the apostle Paul is uh, giving them the information that they need to come out of being an Old Testament saint, if you will, or only in the baptism of John the baptizer, which is pretty remarkable. John the Baptist has been off the scene for decades. And here we are way far removed, probably 1,500 miles from Jerusalem all the way over here to Ephesus. And there are still people who are believing and following John's baptism. So Paul comes and he tells them the truth, tells them who Jesus is, and so when they heard this, notice they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them. They spoke with tongues and prophesied. Now the men were about 12 in all. And he went into the synagogue, Paul did, and he spoke boldly for three months. He reasoned with them. Dialegomai is the Greek word. It's where we get our English word to dialogue. He didn't monologue them. He dialogued them. It was the Socratic method. Paul knew it. Paul studied it. Paul believed in it, that you ask questions and then you let people talk and then you engage them. And I'm telling you, uh, it is the best way to do evangelism in the 21st century. Not just talk, but listen to people. So he spoke, he reasoned, he dialogued, he persuaded them concerning the things of the kingdom of God, period. That's where we left off last week. Now today, we're going to go to verses 9 and 10. You say, are you going to preach a whole sermon on two verses? You better believe it. In fact, I think I could preach a whole sermon just on verse 9. It is so powerful. And it starts with a conjunction. It starts with, yeah, Paul's doing great. Life is really good. A lot of people are coming to faith in Christ. These 12 people, I mean, these 12 men have received Christ. They've been baptized. They're going to become pillars and leaders in the church. Man, this is, sun is shining brightly on Paul. Everything just seems to be great, grand, and glorious. However, but isn't that just like life? <laughs> Things could be going well, and then all of a sudden, however, you get a bad report or you have some difficulty arise and emanate from your own heart or your own family, your business, your corporation, your church, your sports team, whatever it is. Life has its high moments. It has its, it has its pinnacle moments, tops of the mountain, and then it also has some valleys. And watch the valley. And the way Paul responds to it is so powerful. It's exemplary. It's praiseworthy. And it really warrants us as followers of Christ today. It warrants our, our dutiful attention to it. But when some were scleroo, scleruno, 
It's where you hear the word sclerosis, which is a hardening of the body tissue. Uh, That's that word. Now, when some heard Paul preach and teach, they were hardened. Their hearts were hard, and they did not believe. And that's just a fact of the matter. When your heart is hard, it's not soft and pliable. You're not open to the Holy Spirit. You're not open to the things of God. Well, it's a natural progression. Watch this. Your heart gets hard. You do not believe, but your mouth sure does go off. it's, It's very interesting how that works. They were hardened. They didn't believe, but they spoke. But when they spoke, they spoke evil. Jesus said, out of the abundance of your heart, your mouth will speak. All right. So here it comes. Their heart is hard. They did not believe. They spoke evil of the way before the multitude. They didn't talk just among themselves. They told the whole city. So Paul punched them in the face. And no, I'm sorry. That's that's not what it says, does it? Some of you are like, that's what I wish it would say. Those heathen, those reprobates, just punch them. Let them have it. No, no, no. Paul said, look, I hear you. You don't believe. You don't receive this message. So we depart. He departs from them. The antecedent for them would be those whose hearts were hardened, right? And he withdrew the disciples. That's so important. In order to withdraw, you have to be together, right? He took those 12. He took those guys. He'd been discipling them. He'd been showing them, here's how you reason and dialogue in the synagogue. So he took them and they left, but they didn't go far. They went to the school of Tyrannus, and Paul, he was reasoning daily there, dialegami, with those who came to this school of oratory. Okay, this continued for two years. You say, well, I thought Paul was in Ephesus for three. He was, three total, but for two years, here he is in the school of Tyrannus, so that, now watch this, oh, Great Hills Baptist Church, come on now. So that all who dwelt in Asia Heard the word of the Lord Jesus. That is so amazing. You say, well, that might be hyperbole. I don't know. I, I, I just, I think it's awesome. And everybody was hearing the word of Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. Maybe today you find yourself on the top of the mountain. And if you are there, we rejoice with you, right? The Bible says rejoice with those who rejoice. But how about you folks in the valley? I don't want you to raise your hand, but if I ask you to raise your hand, there'd be a lot of valley dwellers today. I get it. I know. I see your texts. I read your emails. I get your Facebook posts. And I understand I pastor a church. A lot of people are in a valley right now. Okay, I get that. And I I know that. But how are we going to respond to it? And what is God doing in the midst of the valley that would conform you to the image of his son, that would empower you to be the man of God, the woman of God, the student of God that he calls you to be? Oswald Chambers, I do invite you to read him. He's a wonderful uh, theologian of yesteryear, but it's like he speaks and it's just like, wow, he, he's, he's like alive today. Any, any Oswald Chambers fans? Anybody ever read him? That's a bunch of people raising their hand. Here's what he said in one of his devotions. If we're ever going to be made into wine, we have to be crushed. You cannot drink grapes. I almost laughed when I read it. I was like, you ever try to drink a grape? That was not pretty. I mean, you get choked with an old grape in your, in your throat, right? Have to do the Heimlich there, Miss Lori, like you did in one of your classes at school. If you're ever going to be made into wine, you got to be crushed. 
You can't drink grapes. Grapes become wine only when they have been squeezed. I wonder what finger and thumb God is using in your life to squeeze you as a grape to become sweet wine. Well, stay right in it. Stay right with God and let him do what he wants. And you will find that he is producing the kind of bread and wine that will benefit his other children. Ooh, that's pretty good, isn't it? That's pretty deep. But it's so true, it's so, it's so accurate. So today, what I wanna do in the text, I only have two verses, and I only have an hour, so here we go. We're gonna get in, it's a joke, I'm not an hour, I'm not gonna preach the whole, the whole hour, okay? So verses nine and 10, I'm gonna look at the opposition with you, okay? I'm gonna look at some expansion as the kingdom of God expands and grows, and then we're gonna close with an invitation. And like I said earlier, I know I'm gonna have two funerals this Saturday alone. There are lots of hurting people. It's a lot of sadness. And it's palpable and it's real. And a lot of you are grieving like I am. The brother Terry's leaving us. When Terry went to get coffee this morning, I told the people, don't give him coffee. Don't give him anything. He's leaving. I'm just kidding. Y'all know I'm kidding. <laughs> Love Terry. Gonna miss him, miss him dearly. But what do you do in the valley? How do you respond? Can you and I say like, Paul, well, watch me. Watch what I'm doing. And then I want you to do the same thing. So the opposition. Here it is. But, and then Paul or Luke, who's writing this, has given us a, a clue that things are about to change. When God is at work, rest assured, somebody else is at work. Can I get a witness? When God is at work, the enemy uh, is at work. If you're known in hell, that's a good thing. If you're on his radar and you're blipping, you're little on the screen, that is good. That means you're doing what you should be doing here on this earth. But rest assured, the devil is at work. He will mount in opposition to the preaching of the gospel. And so when you go to verse nine, it says, when some were hardened, sclerosis, you've heard of multiple sclerosis, literally that is a hardening of the body tissue. And that is a devastating, crippling uh, disease. And some of you have had it, some of you are have it, and some of you know people who have had multiple sclerosis. Scleruno is the word, it's fascinating to me. How many words in English are transliterated from the Greek right into our English vocabulary? And if you're interested, in verse nine, you have one of them. When it says, but some of them were hardened and they did not believe. One writer says they had a hardening of the spiritual arteries. <laughs> and they did. They did not believe the message. They were stubborn. Uh, they were rejecting when I first studied this text years ago, I, I asked a friend of mine, he has a PhD at Duke University. He's one of my colleagues when I used to uh, be a professor and he knows a whole lot more of the Bible than I do, especially Greek. And I said, Dr. Beck, scleruno, talk to me about this word. He said, well, I will be glad to. Wouldn't you love to know, wouldn't you love to know the Bible like that? Just somebody give you a Greek word and say, well, I'll just give you a dissertation on that one Greek word. And I wrote it down and here's what Dr. Beck told me. He said, quote, it means to harden. That's exactly what it means. And in Acts 19, 9, it's in the middle voice, which means they hardened themselves, more commonly understood as willful stubbornness in refusing to believe. And this last sentence was very enlightening to me. I had no idea this was the case. He said, this is how it is always used in the Bible. If you see that word in the Bible, it is a very pejorative, negative connotation they hardened their hearts. But notice the progression. After they hardened their hearts, first they don't believe, their hearts become hardened, 
and then, and then they, they speak. Jesus said it like this. In Matthew 12, 34, he said, Brood of vipers, how can you being evil speak good things? For out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. And so these people were hearing the same message. And, and, and their hearts were not warmed. And they're not interested in the gospel. But, but, but they, they rejected it. And not only did they reject it and their hearts become hard, they began to speak contrary to the way. Did y'all notice that in verse 9? That Christianity is referred to as the way. What does that mean? Many scholars believe that when Luke writes this, Christians are being referred to as, oh, that's part of the way. You know where they got that? When Jesus said, I am the way. In John 14, 6, I am the truth. I am the life. And that, so that was kind of a code word. They're part of, of the way. Have you ever, have you ever experienced this? Have you, have you ever been sharing your faith, living your faith, or maybe even preaching the gospel, and, and you see this hardening come over people, and, and there's a rejection of, of the gospel? I know this happened to me just two weeks ago. I was traveling to uh, Kentucky, and uh, I was going to preach at a conference there, and I was sitting next to a guy on the airplane, and my, my goal is whenever I travel, if I'm not asleep, now that happens a lot, and I get on a plane, I go to sleep. It's a spiritual gift, amen? I, I can sleep on a plane. And, and if I'm not asleep, then I'm, I'm gonna share with or at least try to talk to the person I'm sitting next to, right? So this guy gets on the plane in Dallas, and um, man, he's about eight feet tall. Man, he's, his legs are just, I mean, he's uncomfortable. He's dropping the F-bombs. He's mad. He's talking loud. And I'm like, and God puts him right beside me. I'm like, no, <laughs> put him somewhere else. And he sits beside me. He's just cursing under his, under his breath. And so I began to talk to him. And we talked probably 10, 15 minutes about whatever he wanted to talk about. Uh, never asked me anything about me or my family or what I did. None of that. It was just, just all about him. And I'm like, okay, that's, that's cool. But when I said spiritual things and I turned the conversation toward Christ, he goes, no, no, I'm not talking about that. And I was like, okay, okay. And like shut me down, you know. So what do you do in situations like that? Can I give you a great piece of advice? Don't talk anymore about spiritual things. <laughs> I mean, it's not healthy anymore, all right? And so try to leave that person better than you found him so that the next believer sits on the plane. Maybe he or she can go a little bit further with him. But there was a hardening. There was a hardening because he didn't believe and it came out of his mouth. Now, I believe this is true not only with lost people, but unfortunately, it's often true with saved people. And what do you mean by that? Well, you get obstinate, you don't believe, and your heart gets hard, and you out yourself because you speak. Because <laughs> Jesus said, well, out of the abundance of your heart, what you're really thinking, you will out yourself by the very words uh, that, come, that come out of your mouth. The Bible says in Proverbs, do not speak in the hearing of a fool, for he will despise the wisdom of your words. If you find yourself in the presence of a fool, whether he says or she says he or she is a Christian or not, and, and, and they are, be careful. The Bible says don't cast your pearl before swine. Let the Holy Spirit direct you and lead you. Maybe the best thing you could do is just be quiet. Maybe pray. So next, Luke tells the reader what Paul does. He withdraws the disciples. This is very important because it's gonna be 
It's gonna be instructive for us as we watch him. Uh, like Jesus, uh, Paul was always discipling people. He was always helping people. And so he takes these 12, and verse nine says he, he withdraws with them. Isn't that cool? These 12 people that he led to Christ, I can see them right there with him. He's in the synagogue and he's talking to people and he's engaging and dialoguing. And I can see these new, brand new Christians, believers who've been baptized and now they are walking with the Lord. And they're, wouldn't it be awesome to be led by the Apostle Paul? And they were, they were led by him. And so they are in the synagogues and they're talking to people. And, um, and I, just, I just love this. I, to me, I didn't realize how, how powerful a text on discipleship this text was. In verse nine, uh, they spoke evil of the way before the multitude, but Paul departed from them. He left those people and he withdrew with the disciples. He took his disciples and he says, okay, let's move out of this, this difficult situation and let's let God lead us to a place that they will be a little more open-minded uh, to the gospel. By the way, I'm hearing more and more stories of how this is happening in our church. And I just could not be more proud or more pleased when I hear stories of when men and women in our church and students who are discipling and pouring into other men and women, it's so invigorating. It's so encouraging for me as your pastor to hear your stories of discipleship. Last week, we were so blessed last week. I so enjoyed uh, my friend Dave Owen, as he preached the Word of God from Colossians chapter 2. If you missed the sermon, I really encourage you. Uh, if it's not on there already, it will be posted on our website, ghbc.org. And listen to his message. And by the way, Dave, he, I, he's such a good man, such a godly man. The church he serves at, y'all, is thousands of people. I, don't, I didn't talk a whole lot about that last week. He's been there 27 years and um, the pastor who planted the church stayed at the same church he planted for 38 years. His name is Dave Horner. That's a long tenure, right? 38 years, that same pastor who planted that church is still in the church and one of the most encouraging, affirming people in the church to the current leadership. By the way, that's the way it should be. The pastor, he, he's pastored, had a great ministry, but he stays in the church and he's so affirming and so encouraging. So it comes down to Dave and Dave's best friend to be the pastor of this church that's running thousands of people there in Raleigh, North Carolina. I didn't tell y'all this story, did I, last week? Well, guess what happened to Dave? So many people are like, well, Dave, you're going to be our next pastor, right? Because you've been here 27 years and, and you're a great teacher, Bible teacher, and you're going to be our pastor, right? And they're like, well, I'm praying about it. But his best friend, half the church was going to his best friend saying, but you're a great pastor. You lead the singles ministry and, and we know you're going, to, you're going to take Dave Horner's place, right? And so the church, half was with Apollos and half was with Paul. What is going to happen? Dave, my friend Dave, who preached right here last week, pulled a Dolly Parton. Y'all see what Dolly Parton did a few weeks ago? Withdrew her name from the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, she said, to give it to someone more deserving, and that's what Dave did. He bowed out. He humbly said, look, you take it, and I'll just continue to serve the Lord and do what I'm doing in the church. And I just have so much respect, so much respect for that. He shows up on our campus, 
he goes to the wrong door. And I'm saying, Dave, you're supposed to be back here. And he's like, no, I'm having too much fun here in the coffee shop. He goes, wow, this is an amazing coffee shop. And him and Julie, you, you just, it's so fun when people are guests on our campus. And then Julie says, the sweetest man picked us up in the golf cart. And I knew exactly who she was talking about. She said, he got us in the golf cart and he drove us to the campus. And you know what he did, Brother Danny? He just started bragging on the church. And I was like, I know exactly who you're talking about. And she goes, he started telling us he's been discipled, that people have poured into him. God bless you, Ross Hartsfield, pouring into me. And Bob Early, God bless your soul. I love you, friend. God bless you for doing what you do. And he's picking people up in the parking lot and he's driving them into the campus and he's going, but let me tell you, let me tell you this, let me tell you this. He doesn't know who these people are. He's just saying, I've been discipled, but guess what? I'm about to start discipling other people. To have a mic, just, just drop the mic. And just, I just want to go sit down. Because y'all know what that is? That is success. Success is when you make disciples who make disciples. And Great Hills, that's what we're doing. That's what we're trying to do. And Paul was doing this. He takes the 12. He goes, isn't that ironic? If Paul had 12 in Ephesus, like Jesus had 12 in Jerusalem. If you don't believe me, read 19.9 carefully. He's talking in the synagogue. Their hearts are getting hard, so he withdraws. He goes to the school of Tyrannus. I'll talk to you about that in just a moment. Some of you are wondering, what is that? What's going on with that? We'll talk about it in a minute. But what he does is he takes them, and he's discipling them. And, it, and it, probably people would think Paul is not very successful in his church right now. Uh, you know, there's, there's not the crowds, the thousands of the people. But Paul's so focused on making those disciples who will make disciples and Praise God. I'm, I'm so grateful for our church. And Terry, I love you. You've been such a huge part of this, what I'm about to share. About four years ago, we took, um, took a group of our people. And man, uh, we were about five, six million dollars in debt about four years ago. And, and I felt the Lord leading us to plant a church in Leander in Cedar Park. And so we took Stu, Brother Stu Smithson, and former chairman of the deacons, praise team members, tithing people. About a quarter of a million dollars is what we sent. You say, how do you know that? Well, some the accountant told me, do you know the people that you're sending out to plant that church give $225,000 a year to Great Hills? We're $6 million in debt, and people would say, you've lost your mind, pastor. But you know, God's economy and God's mathematics is not our own. We took them, now, would we have more people in here? Yes, we would. But they went up there, and now they've like tripled in size, and they're reaching people and making disciples. And oh, by the way, we're about, we're out of our $7 million debt, we, and, and praise, praise God for that. So we did it again. In a pandemic, we sent out, we're sending out some of our core team, some of our best and brightest, God bless their souls. Could they stay here? Yes. Could we have more people in the room? Yes. But God, put it on my heart, send them out. And so they are. And Easter, Easter Sunday, we'll start a whole other campus up there in Liberty Hill with that small nucleus of people who would be here, but praise God, we're put them up there. I think this is the key to kingdom growth and expansion. 
Is it different? Yes. Is it difficult? Yes. But praise God, got it right out of the New Testament. So Paul departs, withdraws with the disciples. He pours into them with great, as Chuck Swindoll says, with great grace and grit. And uh, well, let's see what happens. He takes them and they go to the school of Tyrannus and they continued on for two years. Now the school of Tyrannus, there's a couple of thoughts here. I have a whole section here in my sermon. I'm just gonna have to, I'm gonna have to leave it out. But it's a good story about George Washington and Abraham. Anyhow, if you want it, we got it in the manuscript. You, you can have it. But for the sake of time, let, let me tell you a little bit about the school of Tyrannus. This guy, as far as I know, is the only time ever mentioned in the Bible. But here, here's what we know about him. One of two things. Number one, this man was a businessman who owned the school of oratory, right? He owned it and leased it out or rented it out to Paul and this group called The Way, all right? That's hypothesis number one. The other thought that I read that I thought was interesting that this person, Tyrannus, wasn't necessarily the owner of the school, but Tyrannus was actually the orator who taught in the school. And here's what this would look like in the Mediterranean world. At 8 a.m. 8 to 11 a.m., they would have their teaching time. Their pupils would come. And the orator would teach them speech and communication on how they could be influential and gifted orators, okay? What Paul would do, he would work as a tent maker from 8 till 11. And then he would get his guys together at about 11 o'clock. They would come to the school of oratory, and from 11 to 4, he would teach them the Word of God, make disciples, and plant, plant churches. I thought this was interesting that in the Mediterranean world, more people were awake at 1 a.m. than they were at 1 p.m. And that's just what they did. They took siestas. Can I get a witness? Anybody? Like a nap. All right, they took naps. And I thought that's interesting because Paul didn't do that. He has his men. Uh, he, he's making this disciples. He's planting this church. And I tell you, from all over the known world, from that little spot in Ephesus, with this hot-hearted, converted, completed Jew named Paul, and these 12 men gathered around him, they're going to go turn the world upside down. One writer says, Paul's very effective strategy for evangelism was to teach the word, make disciples, and let them spread the gospel. Spiritually, reproducing Christians are the heart of any successful method of evangelism. Another one of my favorite writers said this, the province was intensely evangelized and it remained one of the leading centers of Christianity for many centuries. And that is what I'm talking about when I use the word expansion, kingdom expansion, kingdom growth. And you see it right before your eyes, right there in Ephesus. Well, let me conclude with verse 10. We'll have our invitation, and then we'll carry on. Verse 10 says, this continued for two years. So all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of God. They heard the word of God. Of the Lord. Can, can I just stop there for just a minute? What does that mean? What does it mean when a whole region, a city, a province, a nation, they heard the word of the Lord Jesus from one locale, from one location? When it says the word of the Lord Jesus, let, let me tell you what that means. That means the gospel. It is the prophetic, all the prophecies of Jesus Christ fulfilled in him. 
He's born of the Virgin Mary. He lives a perfect life. He dies a substitutionary death. He's placed in the tomb. And like we sang a moment ago, up from the grave, hallelujah, praise God. He arose from the grave. He is alive. He's changing people's lives. He sends the Holy Spirit and the church of Jesus Christ is scattered all over the known world. That's the message that Paul preached for two years in the school of Tyrannus, but that's not all. I think what Paul also did is I think he taught the ethical implications of gospel-centered living. I think he talked a lot about how the kingdom of God's citizens, how we are of this world, but we're in this world, we're not of this world, and how we live our lives. And I think that's what Paul does for two years so that everybody hears the word of the Lord. Last thing I want to share with you, and I, and I read this, it said there are three types of people in the church today. And all three are in the church at Ephesus. And, and here's what the, the writer said. He said, the first group, are the 12, the 12 disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus who are not yet followers of Jesus Christ. And I thought that was very interesting. And I think uh, Pastor Hughes is, is right that every church in America, literally all over the world, has these three components. There are people who know a lot and maybe they've even have their name on a church membership role or maybe they were even baptized. These 12 were, had all of that but they, they hadn't come to know Christ. They, they knew a lot, but, but their hearts hadn't been transformed and changed uh, by the gospel. All right. As Billy Graham, <laughs> God bless him, he said, by and large, most people in the church today need Christ. They need to be saved. I wonder, is that my church? Is that, is that you? Does everybody in here know Christ, have a relationship with him? And I think a great litmus test would be, what do you say? How do you speak? How do you live? Um, because I think if you have a hardening of the spiritual arteries in disbelief, then it will, it will be coming out of our mouths. The second group, he says, is there are committed Christians who faithfully serve Christ, and I praise God for you, and we do. We have so many, and I'm so grateful for you. You, who knows, y'all might, you might be a part of the next group that goes and plants. I got my eye on another part of the city. Um, Lord willing, in a few years, maybe we can do it again. Maybe we can go reach, reach some more people. Uh, by the way, guys, planting churches is the New Testament strategy for reaching the world. It's hard, it's painful, you have to lose some, some people that you love, but we set them free and let them, let them go. The third group, he says, are believers in the church who were once on fire for God, but not anymore. Come on now. He said, these are people who used to be zealous and excited for the things of God, but they are not anymore. They still come to church, maybe out of duty, out of sense of religious duty, I don't know. But he says, but their hearts are not just zealous and excited like they used to be. Ironically enough, that's what happened at Ephesus. If you go 40 years from the time that I was just reading you, AD 55, when you go up to about AD 90, Jesus Christ 
says, I want you to say these words to the church at Ephesus. You remember that? In Revelation chapter two, he said these words. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, in 40 years, they had fallen from this zealous, vibrant New Testament church planted by Paul, pastored by Timothy, pastored by John, and just over a couple of decades, they had fallen away in their excitement and their zeal. And so Jesus said, remember from where you've fallen, repent. Repent, say, God, I am sorry, I'm, I'm coming back to you and do the first works. Or Jesus said, I will come to you quickly and shut the place down. <laughs> I'll shut the whole church down. That's what Jesus said. I'll come to you quickly and I will remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Man, that's, that's intense. That, that's heavy. Um, I just wonder kind of where you might be today. I wonder where you are in your walk with the Lord. Um, do you know the Lord? Are you... Are you as zealous and as excited for the gospel as, as you used to be? Maybe our invitation today is for you to say, Lord, my heart has grown cold and I am not near as fired up for the gospel as I used to be. I was praying with a lady not long ago and I said, I don't know if you know this, but in 1964, uh, a person came forward in a Baptist church and rededicated his life to Christ, and his name was William <laughs> Franklin Graham. Billy Graham rededicated his life to Christ. He started preaching the gospel in 1949. In 1964, in a Baptist church, a lot like this in Birmingham, Alabama, he walked down the aisle and said, my heart needs to be warmed and changed by Christ. Y'all can probably imagine where I'm going with that. If Billy Graham... Okay. <laughs> right? So I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and close your eyes with me. Maybe we'll just take just a moment. I know it's 12 o'clock, but our invitation for you today is, um, if you don't know Christ, don't have a relationship with him, I invite you right now, right here to turn to Christ and say, Lord, forgive me of my sins and come into my heart. I give you my life. I give you my all. And that's really what you have to do. And and God will do the rest. He will save you. He will change you. He will give you joy. The Holy Spirit will come within you. And he will begin to prepare you to be his witness. Maybe you're here today and you'd say, Brother Dan, that is me. I'm, I, I tell you, I, I, I read with you in the book of Acts. And I see the life that I'm supposed to be living. And, and, and I used to even have inclinations that way, but not anymore. And I don't know how it's happened. I've, I've drifted from that shore of stability and gospel-centeredness. And if that's you today, I invite you. Maybe you'd come to the altar. Maybe you'd come take one of these men or women of God that'll be up at the front and just say, would you pray with me? Pray for me that my heart would be stirred again and that I would be a vibrant Christian once again, that I would share my faith and I would not be so offended. I would not be so upset over the most trivial, small things, pray for me that my heart would be warmed again with the fires of the gospel. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name and all of us come. Lord, again, some are in this room and I'm just 
why I'm just in awe of the Bob Earleys and many, many others who just, Lord, at the drop of a hat, they'll just start talking about you. They will start bragging on our church. And they will even start talking about their discipleship path and the group that they're in. Hallelujah. Lord, thank you for these people. I pray that their tribe would increase. I pray also, Lord, for hearts that are just so, so broken right now. Lord, they hurt so much, they can't even, they can't even imagine how they're gonna get up and go to work tomorrow, much less be a vibrant Christian and be somebody who's on fire for you. I pray for them. I, I have walked in their shoes. I pray that you would come alongside them. I pray, God, that you would send people in their lives that would love them and nurture them and get them back to good health. Pray, Lord, for our church plants and the people, Lord, we're sending out up here at Liberty Hill. I know, God, they're excited, but Lord, what a challenge. What a huge challenge that is. And I pray for them. I pray for me, God, as I am their teaching pastor on Sunday nights that you would use us for your glory and we would see you do great and mighty things. I pray for Great Hills, Lord, as we lose a soldier. Man, what a wonderful man of God. I pray for Brother Terry and Miss Debbie that you would bless them, oh God, in wonderful ways as they are in the Fort Worth area. God bless them and their family. Use them powerfully for the gospel. I pray for them as I pray for myself as the interim executive administrative pastor that you would help me, oh God. I need help. I need our church's encouragement. I need their prayers, so I'm, I'm asking for that. And Lord, finally, I, I just pray again for my heart just feels really burdened for those who are walking at a guilty distance with you. Walking at a guilty distance. I pray for them, Lord. I, I pray that their hearts would not become hard. And if you're listening and if, if you care, and I know many of you do, I, I want to say this to you. It could be that you're thinking, yeah, but I just, I'm waiting for a sign and I'm just waiting on God to do something. It could be God's waiting on you. God's waiting on you. And for some, I don't know how this happens, but humbling yourself, walking toward a, an altar, and just bowing your knees and confessing your knee before God, I tell you, it's, there's something very powerful about that, therapeutic. That might be just the, the first step toward you coming back to the Lord and maybe you getting in a discipleship group, maybe you discipling somebody else. I'm so grateful, God, for what we've heard today in the worship. Lord, it was just so cool when we sang about your resurrection that I don't know who those people were. Lord, they started shouting. It made me want to shout. Lord, I needed that. I, I, needed to, I needed that. Lord, I needed to hear young people on fire for the Lord. And I bless them in Jesus' name. So during this invitation, and we're going to, we're just going to do business with God. We're going to linger here as long as we need to. We're going to have a wonderful time of celebration with Pastor Terry and Miss Debbie. But before we do that, I, I wonder if, if, if you're here and you would say, well, uh, that was me and I, I need to do business with the Lord. Well, I invite you to come. In Jesus' name, I pray.